0: Hello and welcome to another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode we gather a few Deakin anthropologists around the table to interview a visiting scholar about the work, to catch up about the state of the discipline, and see what anthropology has to say about the thorny problems of the 21st century. I'm David Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and today we're here speaking with uh, Tim Edensaw, who is a, an adjunct professor at RMIT and also from Manchester Metropolitan University. Tim is a cultural geographer who has written extensively on national identity, tourism, ruins, urban materiality, mobilities, and landscapes of illumination and darkness. He's the author of Tourists at the Taj, National Identity, Popular Culture and Everyday Life, Uh, Industrial Ruins, Space Aesthetics and Materiality, and most recently, From Light to Dark, Daylight, Illumination and Gloom. He's also the editor of Geographies of Rhythm, Nature, Place, Mobilities and Bodies. Also joining us in our conversation is, as always, a special guest from Deakin, and today that guest is um, Melinda Hinkson, Professor of Anthropology at Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and (laughs) Globalisation. So thanks for joining us. G'day. Cheers, David. So we uh, we often start off with a really uh, entry level and hopefully a bit of a fun question, uh, which is just the kind of how did you get interested in this question? Uh, and especially since you're a sort of fellow traveller in cultural geography, mm. I suppose how did you get interested in culture? Uh, and then also how did you get interested in cultural geography?
1: Well, I actually started uh, PhD studies. With in the sociology department at Lancaster with the kind of quite renowned British sociologist John Urie. So I was initially a sociologist and then I got a job in cultural studies. And my interests, I guess, or my academic interests started to form and extend... They started off with kind of tourism. I was interested in to- the sociology of tourism, which then extended into the geography of tourism, mm-hmm. and then moved into questions of national identity. And subsequently, I suppose, the sort of third major project that I was became really sort of preoccupied with was industrial ruins. And so in all those, in all those uh, spheres, in all those areas... Culture is kind of implicit in all the things that I kind of look at. And it's kind of interesting that although I've moved from sociology to cultural studies to cultural geography, I haven't really mm. s- uh, changed the things that I look at or the way that mm. I look at them. Perhaps a little bit more emphasis on space, landscape, and place, but not really, I don't think.
0: Uh, if it's not disciplinary, and I appreciate that, I think. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of us in anthropology uh, uh, find ourselves uh, sometimes the most, we've, we've been called the most interdisciplinary of the social sciences. Uh, so I think a lot of us appreciate interdisciplinarity. Uh, so if it's not a discipline per se, what drives your questions or what 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 drew you in in the first place? It's it's really interesting uh, that a variety of things kind of draw me in, and re, you, it, the
1: the essential thing to say is that I go with what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't kind of try to identify an area mm-hmm. of underexplored theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I really do is, is is things gain my interest, and they might gain traction. They may there may be some momentum there. Mm-hmm. Certainly with the with the recent work that I've done on. Uh, light and darkness which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute um that just started off in a kind of quite an, an innocent way i wasn't intended to study light but i went down that particular byway and it turned into a giant six-lane motorway that mm. i kind of don't see <laughs> ending <laughs> time soon
0: and that's so that's a really um really fantastic and rich way of approaching a question you know I think a, a lot of us come into into this with a sense that we're committed to a an area or committed to a people and i think um, i think as a as a method that uh that's really in, uh, encouraging and you've been really gregarious in what you've worked on uh, you know you've worked worked on tourism and then nationalism and then the city and and this most recent topic, light uh, has fairly amazingly escaped. A lot of critical attention Um, so why do you suppose first of all why do you suppose it's escaped attention Uh, and then what what made you excited about looking at it in the first place
1: so I'll I'll start those questions Mm. I'll reverse those questions Mm. so what happened initially was I was driving around with a a friend around Manchester in the north of England in December and at that time people start to put up the, the Christmas decorations and also uh, uh, and in um, uh, In particularly kind of working class areas and amongst working class households, they start to guard the houses houses in rather extravagant forms of illumination um, and We were really interested in this and we, we noted that these that there was probably no way that these people of very limited means could make such a statement on space in the daytime. How else would you ever kind of make your presence so profoundly evident? Mm. Uh, and so it started off as a kind of a sociological investigation into why people put up Christmas lights and in, in carrying out that kind of research we wanted to find out what theories of light in geography there were uh, and we were confident that there would be quite a lot of writing about how illuminated space is constructed, interpreted and experienced but um, when we started looking uh, in the In the archives, and I'm talking uh, for as long as geography has existed, we could find nothing whatsoever Mm. in terms of the ways in which light has transformed the ways in which we might understand place, space, and landscape. There's nothing, and since geographers are, I would say that the kind of three key these are the kind of key three um, themes: Mm -hmm. place, space, and landscape. Different kind of spatial contexts. There just wasn't anything, and I, 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 you're asking me why is that the case, mm. and I haven't got an answer for you at all. Mm. It's an, an abiding mystery to me. Do people think that we experience space and place and landscape in some sort of neutral light? Is it always mm. daylight? Mm-hmm. What about the darkness? How might illumination transform the experience of mm. that space? But there isn't anything. Now, there are some social histories about the emergence of electric lighting, some very good social histories. There's a little bit of philosophy. Uh, there's a tiny bit of anthropology, not much. Mm. Um, and you might know the, the kind of renowned paper from about 2007 by Biller and Mikkel Biller and Tim Floor Sorensen, where they kind of introduce... An Anthropology of Luminescence, mm. which was the first, which was the kind of key starting point for me, actually. That was the most seminal paper that I came across. But in geography, nothing. And why that should be so, I mean, I'm still asking that question. Mm. But there is, nevertheless, as with many of these things, when we t- undertake uh, research into an area, it can be quite surprising how simultaneously other people start to pick up on mm. on your own interests. And so now there is a kind of gathering of... of geographers and others who are other scholars who are investigating illumination darkness.
0: Hmm. I'm, I'm just picturing this sort of grey landscape that somehow geographers have worked in for as long as geography has been around um, how does the landscape change then if we start thinking about it in terms of, of luminescence?
1: Well I think there's three things we need to look at first of all we, we can't help but think about the way in which light penetrates our own visual apparatus. Mm-hmm. So as humans, we perceive with light mm-hmm. uh, in a particular way, and that's limited and enabled by the particular qualities that our optic apparatus mm-hmm. possesses. So we, we, in other words, then, we don't see with light in the same way that a peregrine falcon sees with light, which admits a huge amount of mm-hmm. light into its, into its, or into its uh, retina, And and then can focus that light on a patch of ground a mile away, and therefore can see, Mm. let's say, a small rodent, you know, two kilometers away. Whereas that just seems unfathomable to us, right? Mm. So we see in a particular way. So the way we see with light, and the second thing is, of course, the quality of the light itself that falls upon the landscape. So it's it's kind of luminosity, its brilliance, uh, the the extent to which it's it's kind of overcast, perhaps the ways in which that those uh, the the angle of the sun changes throughout the day so that the quality of that light is kind of really important but the third thing that's really important is in what is it that light falls upon mm-hmm. so it falls upon particular kinds of materialities mm-hmm. on particular bodies of water mm-hmm. on forms of vegetation and landforms and so even so even if the light itself is very similar the quality of the light that falls upon the landscape Uh, perhaps in the same latitude, it's very similar. Mm. Um, The experience of that that light on the landscape is invariably going to be different if the landforms, the textures
0: Mm
2: -hmm. of
1: the land that it falls upon, the landscape that it falls upon
0: differs. So there's an ontological intervention there too then. You're thinking about, uh, does does this put you in in touch with uh, the sort of new, new materialities... Folks, and I know that's part of your work already, right?
1: Yeah, it's kind of it's an interesting point that yeah, because of course, in in writing about the so the idea then that the Mm -hmm. that the world is not quiescent and that nothing changes, and in actual fact everything is continuously vital, Mm -hmm. maybe at different uh, you know different rates, but if we look at a landscape and you can kind of think about this in the kind of uh, you know romantic uh, the the. Romantic representations of artists have rendered of landscape. They present this kind of static, peaceful realm. That's what they see. But, of course, on every blade of grass, every bit of the soil, there's seething multiplicities continually Mm. transforming the world at all times. And so it's kind of interesting that, A, uh, the first thing to say, is that light is perhaps one of the most vital things in the landscape. It's part of the landscape. Mm -hmm. The sky is part of the landscape, and so it's a as an element within the landscape. That light is incredibly vital because it changes all the time. The energy that kind of throbs and pulses, flows, waves. But the other thing to say about it as well is that it catalyzes vitality within the landscape itself. Mm. So, for instance, obviously, um, photosynthesis is always going on. When
0: the, mm-hmm. when the uh, light falls upon a landscape. So does that mean you've had to go back and rethink some of your earlier work about you know ruins or tourism?
1: I don't think I've. I don't really think I've had to rethink the the earlier work on ruins because I think I was kind of very conscious of the fact that a ruin is it is a is a building more than any other or more obviously than any other that is in a continuous state of change. Mm. So for instance, I might visit the same ruin. Uh, maybe six weeks uh, two visits would take place six weeks apart mm-hmm. when I went the second time it, the building is a transformed perhaps sometimes almost unrecognisably mm. so that became very evident that that kind of vitality was there um, but I think one of the most important things about light and about landscape w- w- which which became kind of very important to me bearing in mind what I've just said about our optical apparatus um, is that we all, that we see we don't see the landscape, we see with the landscape, so we can't do anything other than to see with the landscape. We see with the trees, we see with the sky, we see with the light. Mm-hmm. So we, we're part, and, and the important point there, of course, is that we're part of it. We're an integral part of the landscape. We're not diff, We're not somehow kind of separate, sort of onlookers, mm-hmm. which is a kind of an obvious point to make. But of course, the ways in which to go back to those romantic representations that I've just talked about. The idea of the sort of gentleman standing atop, you know, a mountain and looking down, giving some sort of a, uh, a representation of the landscape, or a, of a scientist looking at a landscape, or a geographer, or or mm-hmm. an anthropologist looking at a landscape and classifying it—they are always part of that landscape. They will see mm-hmm. it with the landscape. They will see with the landscape and with the light that falls on the landscape. Mm.
2: Tim, obviously this work on light covers a lot of different ground um, and and a lot of different perspectives. Um, One part of the story of this research is to do with the emergence of the Industrial Revolution Mm -hmm. and and the place of the vital role, if you like, of illumination, particularly electrified illumination in the evolution of cities. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about what you've learnt in, in the research for this project about that kind of large-scale transformation, if you, if you like, that we associated with that period?
1: OK, well, the first thing to, to say is that it's really hard for us to imagine two things. First of all, it's almost impossible for us to imagine how dark the world was after nightfall, before the rise of the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an incredibly dark world, and, and again, this would have been kind of shaped by your access to light. So if you were wealthy you would have been able to afford good candles. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Or, or, you know, powerful lanterns, and you would, you would need a sort of retinue of servants to keep the world illuminated after dark. Uh, if you were poor, you would, probably, you would probably have a tallow candle made of animal fat, which required a huge amount of effort to keep going. Mm-hmm. And you, you would, even though it was cheap, if you're poor, you can't afford many of these things. So once nightfall happens, people retreat to their homes. Mm-hmm. And that darkness, that all-pervasive darkness... Shape the ways in which people experience the world. So they'd be really frightened of going out after after dark, not only because there might be kind of footpads and and malevolent <laughs> humans, but also because there'd be you know there'd be wild beasts. But the land itself would be kind of fraught with kind of peril, you know, ditches, overhanging timbers, and mm-hmm. slopes, and so forth that you couldn't see in this kind of dark terrain. So it's kind of really interesting that before the industrial revolution, people would retreat into the into the safety of their homes after nightfall and lock their doors the other thing i'll just say because i always found this so fascinating is when the world was primarily dark people would retreat to their homes and they go to sleep what do you do Uh, so they go to sleep at around 10 o'clock but because it's dark this seems to be kind of human condition they would then wake up about three o'clock in the in the night So there were two sleeps. You would have a first sleep and you would have a second uh, second sleep. And it kind of intrigues me what happened between three and five o'clock in the morning. Mm. What did people do? We can imagine maybe they had (laughs) sex, but they also prayed or maybe they thought or they told stories. You know, it's kind of an interesting time that existed that we don't kind of have now. Okay, so then the second, so that's really hard to imagine, that level of darkness. Then I think what's also really difficult to imagine is the extent to which illumination transformed the world. And especially cities. Now it's important to note that there's various waves of innovation during the Industrial Revolution. First of all, gaslight um, comes along, and, and suddenly, the city becomes available after nightfall, theaters, bars, parks, um, a, a whole array of illuminated attractions, especially in the sort of central uh, streets of the city. Become available to people and people swarm out and and that 's a massive transformation that the very fact that people, especially those with kind of accessible income, can go out but not only you know the, the city is available for for people to go out uh, uh, and enjoy it and become familiar with nocturnal space in a way that they hadn 't perhaps before um, but what 's interesting and what what 's kind of important to note about the sort of rise Of lighting technologies, is that gas then was replaced by electricity, um, but only unevenly. So certain areas remained dark, poor areas of course, Mm -hmm. certain areas uh, were illuminated with gaslight, other areas became uh, lit up with bright electric illumination. Um, And what's really (coughs) interesting is that until about uh, 1930... There was an incredible mixture, incredible diversity, in the patterns of illumination across cities. So it was really, you know, so the gaslight still persisted. There were different qualities, different companies who provided different kinds of lumières. So we had a kind of very variegated nightscape, and 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 so in a way, then the uh, the other thing to say is the way in which then a bit, the ways in which electric and the way in which gas and then electric uh, illumination transformed the world is they kind of defamiliarized space. So they also made it wonderful. And imagine, imagine what it was like for people suddenly de- to walk out, like, let's say, you know, in Melbourne and walk along the riverside and the, there are these lights along the sort of uh, shorefront and they're reflected in the river. I mean, imagine that. And that's, of course, well, that's kind of banal for us now, but at the time it would have created an extraordinary kind of... Impression: areas of the city will be dark, other areas will be will be brightly illuminated. So, creating a completely new landscape, one that I think we can we can think of as as being kind of fairly magical. Uh, and I kind of in Melbourne, I always think of the you know the Exhibition Centre in Carlton Gardens. What would that have looked like when it opened up? They would it would definitely mm. have featured you know really strong and extravagant illumination, which would have you know been marvelous and. Then further on, and you can still sense this a little bit if you go to Luna Park in St Kilda, you can see the magic of what that early illumination might have been like. It's been updated now, but we, at least we can get a sense of what that aesthetic might have been and how enthralling that must have been for these kind of 19th, 19th and early 20th century inhabitants.
2: Is it as straightforward as... The, the evolution of electricity following the interests of capital. And, mm-hmm. and if you like a, a related question, what does electricity do to the organisation of the working day?
1: Oh, right, good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first question is really interesting. I was going to mention this in the talk that I'm going to give this afternoon. And, and it's instructive to look at the United States and the emergence of electric, electric illumination in the, in the United States. So there were two competing visions about how electric lighting should devolve across urban America. And so the first one, as you kind of imagine, was a kind of hucksterist, uh, um, promotional um, advertising light. So a light that illuminated the commercial districts, shop windows, but that also kind of broadcast, uh, that advertised, that created illuminated advertisements. Uh, to to advertise products and you can see the kind of apogee of that somewhere like Times Square Uh, and that's the one that came to predominate so that you know you you know when you're driving through Mm -hmm. a city uh, an American city at night you see a kind of cluster of logos and um, corporate headquarters and so forth Uh, but there was another vision which was for a much more kind of civic orientation which was to create beautiful illumination in parks, gardens, suburban streets Uh, urban squares that was that was all about the kind of production of kind of a um, public space Mm. that was much less kind of focused on the on the more more focused on the civic rather than the commercial uh and as we know the commercial predominated in the states but that's not been the same everywhere i mean you tend to get a kind of mix there Mm. tends to be a continual battle perhaps between those kinds of forces and others so it sounds like light produced a certain kind of citizenship. I think it produced... Well, there's, there are all sorts of exclusions, of course, mm. and that's what I'm going to talk about this afternoon, that light produces. There's a massive inequality in the distribution of light, uh, especially in sort of class and, class and racial racial terms. Uh, and it did produce... You know, we can say that the kind of emergence of the Great White Way in America, which is like a precursor of the, of the shopping mall, the illuminated, huge streets like Broadway, bought consumers out. Uh, so, yes, there was this kind of sense that you know there was an exclusionary appeal to the consumer but of course space wouldn't be it wouldn't have been restricted in quite the same way so you would also get kind of panhandlers beggars and also people who just wanted to hang out in the streets at night so you know they were also allowed access to the space to the illuminated space but maybe they couldn't purchase those commodities that were so brightly <laughs> illuminated and advertised mm.
0: Um, Actually, I wonder if I could ask a follow-up question there about, uh, you know, obviously you're making me think about Benjamin Mm. and um, the sort of phantasmagoria of consumption Mm -hmm. spaces and uh, also perhaps a little bit about the sort of society of the spectacle arguments. And it seems like uh, part of what I'm hearing is that light allowed us to think and allowed us to theorize differently too.
1: Definitely. I, I kind of think it well, it, well, it had to because it also transformed the ways in which we apprehend space mm-hmm. and, it, and it shaped space in a different way. So it did render um, uh, 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 space available for a different kind of thinking. And you mentioned Benjamin there and it's kind of really interesting what he says. I think this is really, really important. I I'm, take this very seriously, his notion. Uh, and he talks about, it's a kind of quite a famous quote that he that he makes and he talks about a fiery red advertising slogan mm-hmm. that kind of dominates the scene and he says okay so it has a certain kind of you know it, it, it expresses the power of those who are able to advertise such a product but what he also says is that that's secondary to the fiery pool of, of if the if the the tarmac is is wet he talks about the fiery reflection that the that the advertisement that the advertisement casts mm. so it casts this kind of incredible red glow across the tarmac which has a kind of a magic which transcends its commercial intention and that's and that's really important when we think about what light does and how it feels so it can never be entirely captured by the semiotic mm. in other words it's always much more you know we always have to t- t- take it very seriously, the sensuous and the effective if, mm. When we think about light, it can't be pinned down by those who want to, you know, bestow particular kinds of meaning. Although they obviously kind of powerfully shape space.
0: There's lots of food for thought there. But I, I have an, a completely different question, which is more of a sort of methods question, mm. coming from critical geography, coming from sociology. Obviously, you have a lot in common with anthropology, mm. and sometimes it can be hard to tell us apart. Mm. We're all interested in culture. Um, in, our, in our own ways we all care about space and place and placemaking and we also all use ethnographic fieldwork. work uh, but we're all inflected by our own backgrounds and so what I'm interested in it's it's really interesting to hear you talk about some of the same sorts of things I might study um, and frame questions, you know, from the get-go frame questions differently. So at the risk of asking a silly question, but I think sometimes the silly questions are also the best ones, could you tell us how you, where you might start or what different starting points you might find if you're free of the sort of disciplinary constraints of anthropology?
1: I think... Uh... It's kind of obvious that I think, although sociologists, anthropologists, and, mm-hmm. and others are kind of interested in space, mm-hmm. for geographers it's kind of preeminent. But the other thing to say about geography, which is kind of very different to these other social sciences, is that it's also contained within a discipline that has physical geography and environmental geography. So, automatically, we're also within a kind of group of people who are scientists Mm -hmm. and that's kind of interesting and sometimes we don't have a very strong relationship with those as human or cultural geographers at all but nevertheless it's kind of interesting that we all look at space in particular ways Mm -hmm. Uh, and i found that really enchanting actually as a geographer to hear about the ways in which a physical geographer might tell me about how the landscapes formed you know i'd be looking at the kind of patterns of of agriculture or the vernacular architecture that, that exists, but they wouldn't see that. They would see the kind of lumps and bumps <laughs> that identified where glaciation uh, had had kind of flowed and deposited material. For instance, so I kind of that's kind of important to say that uh, uh, to start with. Um, so, but then there is then this kind of preeminent kind of focus on space, which I kind of think that that kind of comes. First and foremost, in many ways, mm-hmm. so we we will, we will look at space, and then we will think about the activities, the social practices that take place within that space, and how that the space, uh, the space, the spatial and the social interact uh, probably more acutely. Um, the other thing that I'd say, though, about job, about human geography, having been in sociology and then cultural studies, is that I think it's at the moment. And this might just be a momentary thing. But I think human and cultural geography is incredibly open at the moment to any discipline. So, for instance, now there's this there's this kind of tendency to look at um, to explore the ways in which art and the humanities can interact with geography. And there is a journal that's kind of emerged. There's lots of experiments with artists that geographers are undertaking. Geographers are undertaking. So, I kind of think there is there is this kind of rich and radical openness both to all the disciplines, but also kind of. To other theories as well, so anything goes really. There's no nobody says. I, I have never seen anybody saying geography. Uh, Sorry, this is geography. We don't study this. It just doesn't happen, right? So, and it's kind of really exciting that. And maybe that's some might may find that kind of too protein, too kind of broad. But I I, I kind of like it. The other thing that I think that I, the final thing that I'll say about about human geography is that I think that openness has made us uniquely able to to explore things like this the wider network thinking which is itself is a kind of a spatial notion so all that kind of all those considerations of networks that that are, that have kind of come into, into play, and also more recently the kind of non representational theories that have emerged so notions of kind of affect and atmosphere uh, and also uh, particularly the ways if we're looking at space the ways in which non-humans play a vital role in that space as well so an extension of the social into the non-human is is i think has has been readily kind of it's been gobbled up by geographers they really like that it's kind of people you know we've kind of taken that Mm. and run with it in a in a kind of unhindered fashion
0: Mm. and so it's not some of the the sort of uh head-scratching perhaps hand-wringing about whether or not we can talk about it and Anthropos at the same time that there might have been in an anthropology?
1: Uh, well, I, I haven't noticed it in anthropology. I, don't, I wouldn't want to speak for anthropology, but I've certainly seen it in sociology, mm. where cultural studies came along and then sociologists invented something called cultural sociology, which was not cultural studies, but was really. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we're, we're perpetually debating, you know. Yet the latest crisis, quote unquote, to mm. have hit anthropology, and it is usually mm. of that kind. You know, how how do we continue to differentiate what it mm. is we do from other people? For mm. some anthropologists, these are very very weighty concerns, and for others, they're they're irrelevant, and yeah. we should just get on with the main game. Mm. Yeah. But so, Tim, you're you now in Australia for. Perhaps we could describe it as a, an extended stay. And we know you've been looking around with great interest with your geographer's eyes. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the new projects that, that you're starting to explore um, that, that are based here in Australia?
1: Sure. Well, I'll, I'll, First of all, there's three projects that kind of connect to the work that I've been doing recently on light. So first of all, I'm very interested in festivals and the kind of festivals that take place here. So there was White Night but this week there's going to be the Gertrude Street Festival. I'm kind of interested in the ways in which light can transform space temporarily and what that what that does to space, how it defamiliarizes the world, which I think defamiliarization is a really interesting technique, how it might deepen place, how it might foster spaces of interactivity. So I'm kind of, and that typically happens during particular kinds of light festivals, but in distinctive ways. So I'm interested in exploring how the Gertrude Street Festival uh, produces those effects uh, in a distinctive and quite local way. in contradistinction to white night, which is a much bigger thing. Uh, the second thing that I'm really interested in is the quality of Australian light, that is Australian sunlight, and the ways in which that gives a distinctive feel uh, to the landscape and to space. And to think about how that's been represented in painting, the the Heidelberg School, most people will kind of know about, the first painters to actually represent Australian light as it's experienced, rather than as some sort of pale imitation of European tradition. Um, But also, just to think about how, how it's experienced, what it feels like, what are the effective qualities of that Australian light. And then the third thing, and related to that, is that when I first arrived in Melbourne, I had to walk to the university about a mile away, uh, and it was, I arrived in summer, it was baking hot, and I had to seek shade. And shade is not something, as a British person, that I've ever really had to be concerned about at all. But in the sort of vicious heat and the blinding light that was that, that was cast across Melbourne, I had to seek shade all the time. And so there's kind of really interesting choreographies that are produced by that shade, the ways in which people move through shaded space. And again, to think about how architecture deals with that, think about how we might plan for shade, think about how historically trees have been planted to afford shade, particular kinds of trees, and then to think more acutely about how that feels and how that bestows a, a sense of place on a city, So those are kind of three uh, light related projects but the biggest project that I, I think I want to undertake is to think about building stone in Melbourne and I'm particularly interested in the way in which Melbourne is assembled and then continuously reassembled by different sources of stone supply and so I'm interested in where that stone comes from uh, or, or where it where it came from and then doesn't come from anymore, where new stone comes from, to to continually kind of recompose the city. And I'm interested in the kind of values that are attributed to stone. So a stone that might once have been thought of as abject and unvaluable suddenly becomes um, really valuable. So to give you an example, there's a brickyard in Brunswick where a lot of the old bricks from demolished buildings are collected, lots of different types of bricks. And the most valuable bricks there, the most costly bricks, are those that have large imperfections in them. Mm. Actually, bricks that may have been thrown away initially, but now because they're idiosyncratic uh, and (laughs) unusual, they take on a much greater value. So I'm kind of interested in these kind of regimes of value, which are determined by all sorts of different things. And then finally, I'm interested in the ways in which stone has a, a, a particular quality, both in the ways in which it's quarried and shaped, but also in the ways in which it exists in a city to afford particular qualities to that city, particular sensations. Uh, so, I mean, the obvious one to say is, you know, in the bluestone lanes, when it's dark and it rains and the light shines upon this very black stone, it creates a really quite a strong atmosphere and an effective charge
2: fantastic that that 's a beautiful way of looping the relationship between, if you like the the foundation stone project and and atmosphere as as very much part and parcel of of the same uh, world um, in, in which you 're working and as an anthropologist, when I hear you speak about both of those projects, I can also hear the possibilities of a set of nested projects, if you like that that, that, that drill down to a highly highly Localized um, experience of light, because anyone who lives in Australia or is Australian will say to you, "Well, I'm from Canberra, and of course the light here has these qualities." Mm-hmm. And oh, well, actually, if you if, if you're from the west, then it has these qualities. Mm-hmm. So, it won't take long to to break down the idea of an Australian light, even though mm-hmm. our tourist industry drives that message mm-hmm. of there being, you know, a, if you like, mm-hmm. the the nation has has its own kind of light qualities that goes with it um so that that idea of of, of nested layers yeah. of space from the most local to the national um is a terrific one and also this idea of the handmade mm. if you like brick through to the industrial as different layers of value yeah and this it's, it's, it's i
1: mean it's really interesting i mean i'll just say bluestone which was kind of not seen as a very prestigious material at all you know it was used for industrial buildings churches prisons uh, or the or foundations And and cobblestones, Uh, and so there was this great um, endeavour to find a good source of sandstone, which was found in the Grampians. So all the prestigious buildings, 19th century Melbourne, were built out of this sandstone. Mm. But now, with contemporary technologies... You can do anything with bluestone. You can shape it in the most smooth and amazing ways. So, and now it's become this kind of highly sought-after material, also because of its its heritage value as well. So, it's acquired a venerable heritage value, which kind of also, you know, has it, it, transformed, you know, its meaning and and the ways in which it's valued.
0: Mm. Uh, a, a good question to end on, a big sort of question to grow on. I, I suppose I would like to ask a question about the future, not necessarily. Your specific future projects, but what's next for all of us in terms of light? What's next for all of us in terms of tactile uh, environments? As far as lights concerned,
1: what I think happened in the second half, I've mentioned to you that I think that there was this incredibly variegated pattern of light, of illumination across cities, until the nineteen forties, let's say. But then what happened? Very typically, really, is a kind of a modernist impulse. Light became very standardised. And so it became homogenous and cities actually became really boring for, for the most part in terms of the ways in which kind of light was distributed and the way it shone. It became a mechanical, measurable thing and I think that persist, persisted and it's kind of interesting to talk to light designers who have always kicked against that. They wanted their fancy designs to be uh, taken on uh, by cities. Uh, and sometimes they were, but even then they didn 't shine so brightly in the context where everything was kind of illuminated in this kind of rather standardized wash of light so i think we 're we 're coming to the end of that scenario now, and I think especially with the kind of rise of a whole plethora of different kind of lighting technologies, I think we're on the we we are now at a stage where we 're going to go back to that era where there's going to be an incredible diversity of lighting. You can see this in the kind of huge rise of light festivals, where lots of different kind of techniques are tried out. They're kind of experimental laboratories, really. And so I kind of foresee illumination being much more progressive, both in terms of the kind of energy it uses, in terms of the, uh, the uh, it being much more kind of ecologically attuned... Um, in terms of its kind of diversity and its creativity so i kind of think we we are on the threshold of this you know of a particular era of much better uh, Mm -hmm. greatly enhanced illumination
0: all right look thanks again for joining us both melinda and tim thanks to those of you at home too for joining us here in anthropology at deakin Uh, we've been speaking today with tim edensor from rmit as well as uh, melinda hinkson from deakin university If you'd like to learn more about Tim's work, you can look for a copy of his latest book, From Light to Dark, Daylight, Illumination and Gloom. And if you'd like to learn more about anthropology, you can find us at blogs.deakin.edu.au slash anthropology.